Hey, Olive Branch, thank you so much for being here today. I just uh, love the fact that we're going through the gospel together and going through the Bible together. And if, lately, if you've joined us, this is part three of a series that we're doing called The Illustrated Gospel, in which we talk about how the gospel affects the life of a believer. And so last week, Miles was here, and he talked a little bit about what it means to train, to be trained in the Lord, and to kind of what that does, what the shape of that looks like. And so today I'm going to pick it up here in part three, and we're going to talk a little bit about how the gospel shapes how we care for one another. Um, this is an interesting topic in the world that we live in, uh, because right now when it comes to caring for people, there's a lot of opinions as to who needs the care, why they should get it, or who, who should be approved. And so as we start, we're going to start in this section in, in chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, you have your Bibles. I'm going to hug this text because I think it's a vitally important text it's easy to read through this text real quick and not look at the depth of what's going on here in the passage. And I think it will clear up a lot of things that have to do with how we care for one another and who is what we call the deserving of our care. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit that. But before I do that, I just want to say, um, we're going to talk about caring for people and vulnerable groups, and there's a lot of buzzwords here. I want you to do something for me. I want you to put aside your political and ideological opinions and views and just set them aside here and read through this passage and see if this passage will illuminate kind of what you think when it comes to caring for others. I find that no matter what you're, if you're on the right or on the left, oftentimes when we look at the Bible we bring our, our political opinions to the gospel instead of bringing the gospel to our political opinions. And I think in that we lose the depth and insight of the gospel. A lot of people feel like, oh, the gospel doesn't speak to issues, certain issues. But that isn't necessarily true. And when you find in this passage, is it's very clear that there's a, there's a sophistication to the things that go on in human, in human behavior and how we treat other people and what's going on in our soul. And the Bible speaks to this stuff very clearly. And it's not like we have new insight that would really illustrate the heart of a person. So I would just encourage you to set aside your own political and ideological opinions and just walk with me through the text. And if you have any questions afterwards, you can seek me out. If you have anything particular, I'm not going to get particular into certain things, but I'm going to kind of straddle the line. So by the end of this sermon, you should properly be offended no matter what opinion you hold. <laughs> so before we do that, because that is a big endeavor, I'd like to start with prayer. Uh, so let's pray. Dear Lord, I know that uh, you care a lot for the needs of the vulnerable, the hurting, the poor. And I know in our world that this gets really kind of muddy and clouded and who deserves poor, uh, help and who doesn't. And I pray that as we go through the passage, we see the heart of what you want to do with your church and how we care for one another. And I just pray that people see your worldview clearer than they did before, and they're not clouded by any other thing from the outside world. We thank you for what you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at this text here. We're in 1 Timothy, and, and, and in this section we're looking at Paul uh, talking to Timothy and instructing him on how to care for vulnerable groups within the church. But before he gets into that, he starts with a very interesting passage. He starts in verse 5, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. And I just want to rest on this pace. He's like, what are you saying? Before we get into caring for the vulnerable, he, he reminds people here very clearly in the text how we should treat one another as just brothers and sisters. So it's really interesting when people are in need. So Timothy's a pastor, he's a young pastor, young and relatively in their terms. He's like, some people say relatively about 40 or whatever. It doesn't seem young, but he's going to have to correct older people as a pastor of the church. And so Paul is telling him how to do that in these passages. He's like, when you look at someone that has a flaw in their thinking or 
has some kind of thing that's going on that you need to correct because you know what the Bible says, there's a way you should go about remembering how, who those people are and how to do that. So it says, do not rebuke, and that first line is just rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And right in that way, he's saying, like, when you see someone in the faith, this is a conversation among those in the faith, he's saying rebuke. Well, now, doesn't the Bible say somewhere else that, you know, rebuke, Jesus rebukes certain people, Paul, Paul rebukes Peter? This isn't that same word rebuke. In fact, I think this is really the only time it's used in the Greek, this word rebuke. And what it means is to chastise someone because you have the power to do so. And to, it's, a, it's a, almost a violent verbal response when somebody is in a, in a position where you need to correct them. So it's almost like Timothy's going to take his position in life, his either moral thoughts or what he's going to do, and he's going to call out some older man and just, and just verbally yell at him. And he says, that's not what Christians do. He says, you don't do that. You, when you have to correct an older man who's in it, flawed in his thinking, you need to do so with the word he says encourage. Now, the word encourage is confusing too, because when you look into that word, it means more than the, than the English word. The English word kind of means like, ah, good, I'm encouraging you, keep going, a boy, and you just say affirmations. That is not what's going on here, because he's got to correct some real problems in the church. And sometimes older men are thinking flawed, and they can fall into temptation. So he's saying this word is encourage, and it also sometimes is translated exhort. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but it has to do with uh, trying to walk alongside someone, encourage them towards the truth, but exhort them in a sense that, that you are trying to correct their behavior by persuasion. So, so if you're brothers and sisters in the Lord, you remember, he's not your child. You're not scolding him. You are a bad old man, and you're so wrong. He's saying, no, you come alongside, you teach, you exhort, and you try to persuade that person towards the truth. And that's really what we should do for one another. He says, you should do that with an older man and think of him like you would your father. He says, uh, younger men, young men in the faith, as a brother, like you would, you would come alongside your brother. Older women, like a mother. And younger women, like a sister. And then he adds, in all purity. And so you have this idea that, like, we shouldn't go around when we see flaws in other people thinking that somehow we're the ones that's going to chastise them, but we're going to bring them into an understanding because we, we love them and we want to advocate for them because they're equal family members. They're brothers or sisters, or they're even honorable family members. They're trying to encourage them towards the truth. And he's like, keep that in mind when you want to correct someone else, when you want to help someone else. Whatever you do, make sure that your motives are pure that try to persuade them towards God's truth in a humble spirit. So that's why he adds at the very end, he says, younger women as sisters. And he says, in all purity. Now, this word purity has to do more with the idea that you, your motives are pure. You know, sometimes in ministry, you have a young woman. And he's like, you, she's not your mate. You're not trying to get her to like you. He's like, you have to be pure in your motives. You have to think of her like a sister. And you need to watch your motives when you're dealing with women, especially, especially if you're a young pastor and you're male and this is a young female. And that's what this is going on here. He's like, as brothers and sisters, we don't, we don't try to use one another. We're not trying to get from others. We're not trying to look at someone and get something from them. He goes, you got to remember that you have to think of them like you would your sister. And I think that's a good way to start because now he's going to change and he's going to pivot everything that he's talking about here and going into caring for the poor. And I think that's the key to keep in mind. There's so many times in church where we're fighting over an issue and people will respond as if we're not family. And God's saying, you need to remember that you guys are family. And so you should treat each other like family. So when we disagree on some vehement issues, Unless you're falling off the faith, which is a different kind of exhortation, but it's still done with kindness and persuasion, it, then we should treat each other with a certain honor and dignity and respect. 
And that's the thing I really want to, I hope that no matter what we're talking about in the church, when you disagree with your pastor, when you disagree with your fellow brother or sister on any particular issue, that you remember that you are family, that our bond together under Christ should be greater than any other bond, even ethnicity or even sometimes familial bonds. And so the Bible's saying that don't forget that this is your family, that your primary family is one that serves the Lord. And that's the kind of thing I want us to remember so as we go into these issues, because I think it's, it can get quite heated in the world that we live in. So the next passage he goes into here, he says, he, he says, um, oh, we talked about, so why, he talks about here, he jumps into verse passage, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. And here we have this heated thing. He's like, honor widows, and then he says, who are truly widows. And so God says, like, I care for the vulnerable. And what you see is this background. So if I was in the ancient world and I heard this phrase, honor widows who are truly widows, the first thing it would trigger isn't just, oh, we only care for people who don't have husbands. And it's just females and it's, it's just those, that population. It's easy to see that and, and oversimplify this text to just widows. And what he's saying is here is like when, when, an, when an ancient person heard the word widow, it reminded them of an old, old verses from the Old Testament. It sparked these thoughts that God is very specific about. And so if you read here with me in Zechariah 7, 8, and 10, these are some of the passages that would come to mind. And this is kind of where people think Paul is headed when he's thinking about these terms, when he talks about widows and orphans. It comes up throughout the New Testament, but it's an Old Testament idea. So it says, and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus say, says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment. So it's like more about like a justice and a judgment. Show kindness, and then he says, and mercy to one another. And then he goes on to this pattern that comes up throughout the Old Testament over and over again about what these groups of people. He goes, do not oppress the widow, and there's your first reference, the fatherless, the sojourner, which is a foreigner, someone from another country, the, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So he's telling the children of Israel, he goes, look, there are these oppressed, vulnerable populations among you, and they are without something. The word widow means like without a husband or without. It, it actually has a broader term than we use, like someone died and they has to have a spouse. What would fall into this category would be people that are out of a relationship, that have been kind of separated from the, the mainstay of the culture, and they are without a relationship. And so it says, well, these groups are vulnerable. And so this is often learned, uh, referred to by a guy named Nicholas Walter Stoff, a theologian, called the Quartet of the Vulnerable. And so the idea is that these are populations that are vulnerable that we should be concerned with. Why? Because God's concerned with them. He says, I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm in, I'm in the council of heaven. He says, I render judgments. He says, show kindness and mercy to one another. That's how I want you to do it. And remember these groups of people because oftentimes they get overlooked. A widow that doesn't have a husband could die in that situation. An orphan without a family in the ancient world would die. So these are populations that often go overlooked because everyone's kind of just focused on their own interests. And so God is uniquely concerned with these people. As he says, he even identifies with them. He says, God identifies uniquely with the needs of the poor. He says, I care about these people because I believe in justice. And I believe in this justice so strongly because it's an attribute of who I am. And so I want you to care about these people. And it's really odd because in the ancient world, that was not a thing. You didn't, if you were the pharaoh and you, and you were the king and the god of that country as well, uh, you, you were, God, the gods were more concerned with the pharaoh and the rulers and the powerful than they ever were with the poor. The one thing about God in the Old Testament is he uniquely sets himself as the god of the poor as well. And that is almost like, why would your god care for the most weak and disgusting and the people that are just used for cannon fodder and used to build pyramids and all this stuff? Why would your god care about that? It was a unique 
aspect of who God was. He says, I'm a God of justice, so I don't just care for the wealthy. He does care for them, but I also care for the poor. I care for the people you don't care for. That's the kind of God I am. They would have laughed at that in the ancient world. They would have thought that was absurd. Your God is the God of the poor. And so this guy, so this God, Yahweh, he identifies uniquely with those needs. And he wants us to do the same thing. He says, I want you to show justice and mercy, which are my attributes. So he talks about being in there in the throne room and he's saying, I'm the Lord of your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial to take, and he takes no bribes. So he says, I'm a God who believes in justice and I don't take bribes. I'm not someone that you can easily sway one way or another. That's who I am. He says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing, loving the sojourner, therefore, so you, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And he makes this comparison. He says, look, you guys, when you were roaming around, were slaves. You guys were without a culture. You guys were chastised and you were set apart. He says, don't forget that. And, and so treat other people with dignity and respect that you find in those situations as well. And he says, I want you to remember that. I pulled you out of Egypt. Now for us as the Christian, it's different because we are created in God's image and we're not to mistreat other people, but also we had something happen to us as well. We were actually saved and God came into our lives when we least needed it. And he asks us to reach out to those who are in need to remember that. Like I couldn't do anything and I was powerless. That's where God met me and made me a part of the family of God. So if that's our attitude and we understand that, and you understand that God has rescued you, then you treat people who need to be rescued with a certain sense of sensitivity because you relate to them. And so God doesn't want us to mistreat other people, no matter who they are. Because of this particular idea that we, uh, whoever oppresses the poor man, insults his maker, but he is a generous to the needy and, and, and honors him. So this idea that the idea behind what it means when we take a vulnerable group and we dishonor them, it means that we discount them and we don't actually treat them not as like they would want us to be treated or how they think it should happen, but how God would think it would happen. Because when you insult other people, you insult the God who made them. We are all created in the image of God. So when we devalue other human beings, when we hurt them and we think less of them, uh, no matter what your position is, when you do that, you are insulting the maker. And so that's what this passage says. It says, so, so don't oppress the poor man because it insults his maker. I made everyone equal, God says. I made you created in my image. And so therefore you should treat each other fairly and adequately and care for the needs of one another and not abuse each other or oppress each other. And I think that's important to keep in mind because there's a dialogue here about power. God says, I'm in control and I have the power and I have created you in my image to care for one another and to love me. And so I want you to treat each other with respect and dignity. So it's not about I, I need to obtain power to get it or I, if I'm in the lower class. The idea is that we respect each other as God would have us respect each other and treat each other the way he'd want us to treat. So, but if you don't have the heart, this heart in us, and this is the heart that he's trying to get the Old Testament is not any different from the new. And Paul is very uniquely aware of this Old Testament belief. So, so if you don't have a heart for others, you may not have the right kind of faith. And so this is really expounded upon in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the ancient world, they were supposed to care for foreigners and widows and orphans, people in need, to bring them into the family of God. Nothing's changed except now that we're doing this within the auspice of the church. And so a lot of writers like John and, and, and especially James are going to go on with this thought. And it says here, in, right here in James chapter 2, when you look at James chapter 2, you read it, a very popular passage that says, um, What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warned and filled, without giving them things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And while sometimes we the faith and works, we're doing good works. This has to do with the poor. And he's literally talking about people who are vulnerable. He says, when you see someone in need and you walk by and you act like you don't care about them or you're not interested in bringing them in the way that God would have them be and be an equal partners in the Lord, then do you really understand your salvation? Now, I don't think doing works is salvific. I don't think that that's what makes you saved. But what James is saying, like, if you really understand that God died for you when you were vulnerable and you had nothing and you didn't deserve it, he steps into your life, shouldn't that provoke you to care for those around you and treat them with dignity and respect, no matter who they are. And so this is the thing. If you don't do that, do you really have the faith that you say you have? And I think that's important to keep in because he's going to go on to tell us how should we care for these needs. So you see the need, you see the press there. And so now we're going to get into this phrase. And I'm just going to start with the first one. It's like, honor widows. And now we're going to get into the real controversy. It doesn't seem like verse 3 is really a controversy, but it is. So it says, honor widows. So what does this word honor mean? That means that you don't, you give weight to someone. It doesn't mean like, oh, let's celebrate them. They're better than all the other people. So poor people are now better than other people. No, that's not what this is saying. He's saying that you give them a weight because of the situation that they're in to hear them out. It's saying that like I, I, when, I, when I see my mother in a room, because it says you treat widows like, they're old, like your mother, you, if she says something to you, your, your eye and your ear and your heart is inclined to listen. You respect what they say to you because of the relationship you have. And so this idea is that when people are chastised and they're marginalized, if they are truly marginalized, as we say here in the next passage, which was also very, very tricky, is that, that we do treat them with respect. And this is something that I just see in life, that we often don't treat people with respect unless we feel like they have some value or have contributed positively to society. And I think in some ways that might be, seem like a logical thing to do because you're looking at their virtues and judging um, who they are, but that doesn't have to do with their total value. That has to do with, like, if someone's created in the image of God, there's something in them that you need to look at with respect and weight and to listen to them and hear them out, even if they're the most odd or weird person they're created in the image of God. So they're, certain, they're due a certain amount of respect. So this is saying, take a group of people that have been put on the bottom and lift them up as if they're your brother or sister. Put them on the shelf as like they were your mother. Concern for, have concern for them. And so we get into debates, so how do you do that? Because everybody's not that way. And so we have one side that says, we need to honor everybody's vulnerable, listen to everything they say. Not quite true, but we do need to respect them, right? So we need to honor them in the way that they should be listened to, but not necessarily do what they want us to do. So he says, are they truly widows? And now in our modern ages, we would be totally offended. What do you mean truly widows? They said they were widows. Uh, no, he says, now there's an evaluation process here. Not only that evaluation process, our level of work to get involved and care for one another has to have certain uh, constraints. And so that's why he goes on here in the verse. He says, but if a widow has children and grandchildren, so you have this population, it's called widows. And then there's a population that we're going to help called the truly widowed. That doesn't mean they're all lockstep. It means within that group, there are various needs that need to be addressed and concerned with. And we need to discuss these things. They're not something where we, we treat that entire group like all the same, because that would be wrong as well. So he puts some stipulations here. He says, if they have children or grandchildren, if this widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show the godliness of their own household and make some return for their parents. For there is, this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so what he's saying here is the first line of defense before the church takes these widows in and literally feeds them, because that's what's going on here. They're putting them on a register. 
and this register is a list of widows that, that their church is going to take responsibility for. They're going to completely take over as far as the financial burdens of their life. And that requires a lot of, of, of constraint, and it, not everyone can qualify for that particular program. But he's not saying we don't care about widows ever. He's saying that if they have children, we're going to encourage the church, the, the, especially if they're members of the church, to take care of your parents. So it says, make some return for their parents. So this, this phrase goes out like, a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm a parent. My goal is to launch my kids so that they never need me. And I find that to be, an, you know, it's noble and it's, it's nice. But when you get into need, the Bible actually says that we are supposed to concern ourselves with the needs of our, 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 our vulnerable within our family. If you have a widow in your family, God's going to require of you, grand, and this is where grandparents and grandchildren and other things has more to do with just anyone in the family who is children of this family. They owe something to the older people in their family that came before and allowed that family to grow and, and be strong. And it, this word says, make some return for their parents is a financial term as well as an investment term. They invested in you. They cared for you. You care for them. And so though it might be godly to say, I never need help from my kids or I never need help from other people in my family. It is God saying that this is pleasing to me when you honor your parents by taking care of them. Now, that I, I can, if you want to go into details as to how that looks, those are some of the questions I have. My background is in, in social work, so I do like to answer how these questions look biblically and how practically they look. But the principle here is that God thinks of the family who are Christian in the family as the first line of defense when caring for people within their own family. So yes, you do have to care for the orphans and the widows and the people in your family that are outside of the mainstay who just know what he cares about. You are responsible for that if you are a Christian. So it goes on, he says, and he starts to require things of her. In verse 4 it says, But if a widow has children and grandchildren, he says, uh, This is pleasing to God if you care for them. So verse 5 says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. So this idea is if we're going to, as a church, invest more in the life of an individual, we're giving our resources or time, that there is something to be said that, to make it a requirement that this person grows in their faith. One of the worst things a church can do is foster in this idea that we're just going to help you, but that you have nothing to offer. It almost seems like people think it's cruel. So this has happened a lot on our James projects where someone's in need and we want them to participate in the help of their own needs. Because if we do everything for them, what it's kind of saying is that you are a child, you're not a sister or brother, you have nothing to offer, so we're not going to hold you accountable to growing in your faith. And we're not going to say anything to encourage you to do that. Now, we don't do this like a parent. This is what I don't like, because when we parentify them, we make, because they need our help, we, we, we say, we demand these things. We start treating them like a child. That's not what's going on here. The idea is that I want to encourage you, come alongside you in a partnership to show you that, that you need to be closer to your faith. So if the, if the church is majorly investing in your life, what we would require of you, if we loved you and care for you, is that you grow in your faith. That we ask you questions about, like, how are you doing? And so Paul is saying to Timothy, not, oh, make sure she does all these things to be a good Christian. He's saying, no, no, encourage her to, to support night and day that she can contribute to the body of Christ. She's an equal member. She has something to contribute. So these are ways for Paul saying, like, we require you to read your Bible, to grow in the Lord, and to just grow. And that's what we're here to facilitate. So it's a, it goes on here to say, um, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and so it jumps all the way to verse 8 here, and he says, here's some more, here's some more expectations He's, uh, he says, he doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household. He has, done, uh, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here Paul is putting stipulations on the kind of help that he's doing. He even, he even says in verse, uh, verse 6, he says, but, 
But if she's self-indulgent, he's dead, even while she lives, command these things well, as well, so that they may uh, be about, about without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, he especially in, in members of his little household, he's denies the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this idea is that not, this responsibility for caring for a person isn't to let them sit around and do whatever they want, but it also is, it involves other people. So oftentimes on a James Project, if someone has family, we'll ask, hey, is your family in, in church? Or are they involved? And if they are, then I think it behooves us to require them to care for their family. Because there's something to be said that if you don't understand that even people in your midst are vulnerable, this goes back to the James, then do you really understand your faith? And this is why he says uh, adamantly, if you don't care for the vulnerable in your family, it's like you don't understand the faith that you have. It's like you're worse than an unbeliever because you should know better, but you don't. And you don't act on the thing that you say that you have in your faith. So it's really a cautionary tale that we care for those in, in, within the body of Christ. So as we go on here, he also says in verse 11 through 12, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation and having abandoned the former faith. And so here we get into like, oh my gosh, what is he saying here? He's saying, so there are widows, then there are truly widows, and then there are these truly widows here who are young. And so like I said, and this program isn't like a program like, oh, this is how we treat all widows. So a lot of times people will read this passage and they'll use it like very tersely without understanding the depth of this passage. And they'll say like, oh, we have a widow program. And so every widow is treated like this. Now, there is something to be said that you can use some of these principles to create a program. So this is a program that completely allows widows. And some people actually think that they're making a dedication to themselves, to the church for life. So they're not going to marry anymore. They're going to let the church take care of them. And the church is going to use them in ministry. And they, they start meeting the qualifications of the deacon here in some of the way these words are used. So they're talking about how, they, how she cares for the other people later in the passage. And so he starts making these criteria, but he says, there's this group within this population that I don't want you to help. He says, refuse to, in this program, I don't want you to help them with this program. He says, you're younger widows. For when your passions draw you from them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned the former faith. Now, this is a specific problem that was going on in the church where women who were widows, who were still young enough, who could marry, were dedicating themselves to this program where you're not, you don't marry out, that you're going to live your life out blessing the church. And then later on, their passions would be like, well, hey, I, I have this desire to marry. And so he says, yeah, you should marry. And so this program is not for them. That doesn't mean that your family shouldn't take care of that widow. It definitely means that. It means that other members of the church can care for you in other ways. They can exhort you, encourage you, and even help you financially. But as a program within the church, we're making this a requirement. And this seems kind of cruel, but if you think about it as a single person, as a person who is single and thrust out into the world, and they're in that population, if all of the programs that you have for singles or the lack of programs you have, or any program within the church to care for someone is facilitating them to sin more, or encouraging them to sin, then that's a program that we need to be concerned with. And so we need to ask ourselves, are, we, uh, are these programs set up to help? Or do we have programs that don't even care for certain groups? And so what I mean by that is, well, sometimes you can create a, a, a program, and you see this a lot more in government than you do necessarily in church, that actually facilitates people to sin. So a lot of people have done studies, like there are definitely problems with the morality among the poor as far as their virtues. And so they found that younger people when they, were in, um, when they were poor, poor people, when they would have children out of wedlock, they would not marry. And so people thought, well, this is immoral, and this is a, this is a reason why the, the family's falling apart. But when they pressed in to look at some of the issues, because some of that's true, they started to find out that some of the programs that these people were in were incentivizing them not to marry. So it was saying, like, I roll you in this program, but if you get married, we're going to take away this money. 
And so now you have less money than you started with because you're stuck in this program. And he says, I don't want you to set up a program that when some young widow who wants to marry, and there's nothing wrong with marriage, he actually encourages them to marry, that she feels obligated now to do this and now she's stuck. That you've allowed this kind of, in order for them to take our help, they have to like make these difficult choices that are immoral. And even though that's still uh, an obligation for that person to not be immoral, so that the, God's still going to judge that person for, for the things that they're doing, but he's also going to judge the church in that program for facilitating a thing that allows people to be in sin. And so this is the true with our programs. When we create programs, are we creating people that aren't being autonomous, that aren't being drawn into the fellowship and being treated equal, but we're actually treating them like children? or putting them in a position where they have to make immoral choices and then judging them. So that's not the programs that we're supposed to have here. So that's why he says, I want them to, to marry. So it says, if, if anyone is a believing woman, has relatives who are widows, let, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that we care for those who are truly widows. And so you, you see here as he's, he goes on in his level to continue to talk about these programs. And he's saying like, look, there's a line of care within the church and it starts with you caring for your family but in that world when it's broken down the church needs to step in and he says like but within that family other people who have the means should care for those who are in that situation that way the church isn't burdened with the full responsibility of what goes on in the life of those people that are hurting and so i just want to say like it's it's real easy when we look at programs and we look at people in need to not think of them like we would be in, if we were in their position and to think of it as like, well, this is the church's obligation or this is the government's obligation. But the Bible's saying, well, what is your personal obligation to these people? What should we do to care for people? And it doesn't mean that you, they become your, your project. It means that they become your brother or sister. And the whole goal here is to restore them into a relationship. So the idea is that we want to care for them, but they're not without. They have things to contribute. And they have a means to be able to do that. And so we never want to put people in a position where we don't encourage them to contribute. There's been times at James Project where people, the people that we're helping will come out and help us. And even if they, they don't have the means, they, just, they don't have the physical strength or whatever, letting them do something lets them know that they're not, they're not just powerless, that they have something to contribute. So oftentimes on James Project, we'll ask, hey, what is there something that you can do in your situation that could help this effort. And we actually put people to work. And that's really frowned upon by some people. They're like, why would you do that? It's like, well, because to say that no one has anything to contribute to their own well-being doesn't do them a service. It puts the entire burden on the church to, to take them in like a child. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying that we want this person to be restored so they're an equal member of the body of Christ and that they're properly respected and treated like that. And so this, I think, eliminates the, the extremes we have in our culture. Where our culture says that, like, if you're the vulnerable people, that you need to be, you need to fight for your power, and that, and that people need to listen to you. Yes, people need to listen to you. Yes, you need to advocate for the truth. Um, but you're not trying to gain power from those who have power. Or when you have power, you have to be the kind of person who looks at other people who don't have power as a brother or sister. So the Bible is very clear in its in its sophistication into these issues. Not every group within a certain group is lockstep, and there are means and difficulties within those particular situations that we should concern ourselves with. So I find in this passage a very clear model of how we should treat each other. And so I want to say, just in conclusion, for looking through some of these passages, I want to say, let our biblical worldview guide our care when it comes to those who are vulnerable and needy among us. 
So we have this argument like, well, are they truly needy? And I think that's good. The question is, are they a brother and sister in Christ? What is, what is the way in which we can help them? And we need to make sure that they actually are truly needy, but we don't have the full understanding of that ourselves. So we need to dive into the scriptures that tells us to be incredibly empathetic to those who are in need, but to use it as a guide to make judgment calls. If we never make judgment calls, if we never tell people, even who are in those situations, look, I can't help you if you don't want to help yourself. And this is something that we dealt with here at the church. Um, there are times when people will come to me in, in good heart and say, I want to help the homeless. I want to give them food. And my response is always, well, what do you want to do for their homelessness? And that sounds cruel because oftentimes you think, well, I just want to do a nice thing for someone. But the question is, is that nice thing that you want to do going to restore them into a relationship? None of the things that we should do in our help for one another should not be required to restore a relationship. As a widow, you, the idea is that you don't have a husband. And so we're going to step in and restore that relationship to the family. As a sojourner, as a foreigner, you don't have a country. As an orphan, you don't have a parent or a father or a family. And so we want to take those people in and make them family. But we want to make them equal, not children, not babies. We're not trying to parentify them. And so our worldview needs to be sophisticated. Often people look at these passages and they think, oh, these were ancient times. They don't understand the sophistications. We have way more information, so we know how to care. I would encourage you to really look at your Bible because I actually find, even in my career field as a social worker, I've studied poverty. I've studied it time and time again. How do people get in poor situations? And you find that the Bible is true every time, that poverty is not just a condition of economic problems, but it has a lot more to do with the idea that people have been broken in a fabricate, in a, in a, in a broken relationship. So all of us are broken in a different way. Some people are economically poor. Others are poor in their community. Others are poor in their ability to be a member of a group. So we're so individualistic, we can't understand how to be in community. So we're poor in community. And the Bible talks about this all the time. It says that there was a poor church that Paul was helping. It says they were rich. They were rich in their, in their help. So he's like, this poor church was rich? How are they rich? Well, they understood how to help and care for others. They had the character quality they were rich in to help other people. And so that's what they were using to help other people. But the rich church was poor in that. And so this idea that when we see economically poor, that that, that, is a, that may be a flaw in their character, but we also have flaws too. So we need to be very careful and dive into our scripture to let it guide how we care for one another. And not to forget that we, when we care for others, that we don't put a log in our own eye when we try to remove the speck from another person's eye. All right, the, last thing, the second thing is uh, allow others in, in the faith to be our family. What I find is one of the most difficult things in just my time here at Olive Branch and just helping other people is that everybody wants to be, in certain senses, a rugged individual. And they want to do everything and be autonomous. But that isn't really what we're called to. And when you look at Acts in the ancient church, they met each other's needs. They cared for one another. And this doesn't require you to be so destitute that now you're going to reach out. That means that you share your burdens with one another and you help each other to grow in our faith. We have to allow the church to be our family. That means we need to put other things aside. Yes, there are racial differences. Yes, there are differences in poverty and there are differences in social structures. But our primary relationship is in the family of God. That is the thing that we need to remember. That God takes people from different ethnos, from different backgrounds, and he puts them in his family and he wants them to act like family. That is their main focus. So even though we have drastic backgrounds and differences, God wants us to treat each other as family and to be open to thinking of a brother and sister as you would someone within the family. This is the new ethnos. This is the new group that we are affiliated with. It doesn't mean the old group goes away and then we're 
some kind of some kind of colorblind society. What it means is that we don't forget that this is our family and we treat each other that way. The third part is really um, bless others uh, out of what God has blessed you with. So I find that we are all poor and rich in different ways. Most, some of us are economically poor. Sometimes we're disenfranchised from the main group, but that doesn't mean we have nothing to contribute. And in my working with people who are poor, I have seen some of them be some of the best at advice, be some of the best at time, the understanding of the complexity of hurting people and how to talk to them. There, no matter what your condition is, no matter what state you're in, like you look at Ruth, who is totally vulnerable, she takes in Naomi because that's what she has. She has a love and an abiding compassion to care for people. So that's what she's using. So that means that we need to bless others out of what God's blessed us with. So no one can walk away, who is whether you're vulnerable or rich, and say that God hasn't blessed you with something that you can't bless someone else with. So that is what we need to do as a church. We need to figure out a way to help each other's needs and to really dive into each other and to see who needs help and how to help each other and be open to that. So that's how we learn to bless. So with that, I want to say, um, before I close, I want, to, I want to make this practical. So some of you might be full of weight. Yes, we need to care for those people. We need to go out of our way to look for the vulnerable. Yeah, we don't want to parentify them. There's all this stuff, and it's, it can be very complicated, but this is a dialogue. So if you have more specific questions, I would love to help you. But I want to say that we, let's start this process now of actually treating people with dignity and respect. So I want to offer you some challenges here. So the first one is really um, to let you know what goes on in our own particular body. Right now, there are needs all the time, and especially after COVID. There's a lot of people who've, uh, been, uh, who've had to deal with grief and had to deal with pain of loss of somebody who's died. And there's a lot of people that are just hurting and struggling. I think we need to make each other aware of who these needs are. And so well, what I want you to do is, to, is just to make you aware of some of those needs within the church. One of them is, is, is through our ministries, and I, I don't want to make it seem like we're trying to just promote the ministry because every ministry to me means caring for somebody. So Care Portal, all of us here, we greatly out of the richness of our heart, blessed everyone has donated a, a whole entire storage bin full of needs or full of, 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 of goods. And we want to give those to the poor. But what we're having a problem with, especially in a city like uh, ours, is the people to let us know who needs them. So our church came out. They said, we're going to jump in and help. The second part then is, okay, we need to find those people who help. So if you have someone in your neighborhood, if you know someone in your family that needs some material goods that we can start a relationship with through these material goods, pray for them, talk to them, invite them to church, invite them to understand the full richness of what we offer we want to hear from you. So there's cards in the seat if you're here in person, but if not, you can contact us via um, our e the e uh, email addresses here. But if you have something that you want to offer or you know someone who's in need, we need to hear that. So uh, the best way, if we as a church try to go around and we try to hunt down needs, uh, this is part of what our ministry does. A lot of times the other ministries are full of needs, but ours is to go out and necessarily hunt down needs to, to fulfill them. You guys are our first line of defense. You need to let us know if someone is hurting, even if they just need a, a lift, something to lift their spirits. You think maybe uh, something like a, just having a hard time or they're sick. We want to reach out to those people. So to contact Care Portal through that. The other one is we have a, a man who, uh, who's here who, who is in a rest home. This is right up the street. Um, for those of you who know his name, I'm not going to say his name, but you know who he is. Um, and all he wants to do is come to church. And so he's asked people who want to volunteer to help just go pick him up. It's right down the street and take him to church on a Sunday and take him back. And so if you have a heart to do that, we want to meet that need right here within our congregation. 
Um, and so I want you to do is I want you to say, if you're whatever it is that you think God's blessed you in, we want to hear what that is. And so oftentimes in the body of Christ, it says in Acts that they tried to meet each other's needs. So what I want us to do is to actually write down what you think God's blessed you with. Maybe you're good at taxes. Maybe you have a lot of spare time and you think you can donate to the church. Maybe you're looking for, uh, you, you are just an honest mechanic and you offer fair wages. We want to know what you offer so that we can recommend you as a Christian to some other person. I remember a church that had like, uh, they had a, he was a mechanic and it was a small church and he was the most honest mechanic. So he was always full of business. We want to offer that because I think that helps his family and it also helped the church know that they can get an honest mechanic. And it also brings the church in if we need to arbitrate for those situations. So if there's something in your business, something that you have, or if you have time, we want to hear that. So if you're, if, if you're around, would you let us know and contact us? And so that's really a practical way to do that. But just in your family, I would say, sit down with the Lord sometime this week and ask Him to open up your heart to see if there's someone that you can uh, bring into and lift up and then maybe you have a need that you need to lift into the family. So I just want to say that. I want to give people a practical way to do that. So let, let me just close in prayer. And I just uh, remember that we're the family of God and we need to care for one another. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, uh, you know, caring for us when we had nobody. You know, we are poor in spirit. We knew that we could not do anything to save ourselves. And yet you had everything. You, you were the God of, uh, you are the God of everything. And you gave up all of that heaven to come down to just die for us. And it's with that heart and that spirit that we look to, to try and encourage other people to be in relationship with you. Those that are outside on the margins, those that have been overlooked. Uh, in, in many ways, we are all poor no matter what our condition is, Lord. So I just pray and I thank you for that, that you open our eyes as a church to be the church and so that we use the gospel that you've given us to reach those around us. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks, guys. Uh, God bless. And, and uh, if you have questions, talk to me. This is a dialogue. Thanks.